Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and we respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hi, good evening, uh, and welcome. I'm, I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsai. Uh, we're very grateful to partner for this event with the USC Annenberg Center on Communication Leadership and Policy. Tonight's event is being broadcast on Facebook Live, uh, and I'm delighted to have this conversation with John Delavolpe. I've known him for 30 years. He was young when I first met him and very talented. He's still very talented. <laughs> He's the director of polling at the Harvard Kennedy Institute of Politics, and as the Washington Post wrote, a leading expert on young voters in this age of digital and social media. By the way, he even went to North Korea in 2008 to study millennials there. Uh, he appears regularly on television, on MSNBC, on Morning Joe, and on shows like Trevor Noah. Uh, John, I want to start with a pretty broad question about millennials and Gen Z. How different are they from the rest of the electorate, and how are they reshaping the political landscape? Thank you, Bob, uh, for, for having me, and uh, thanks for ev everyone um, for spending part of your afternoon with me. And I think that this is, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have basically been embedded with millennials, your generation, and, and, uh, and Gen Z now for 20 years. And uh, as a way to answer that question, I want to tell you how I kind of got involved. Because if I, wasn't, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if not for millennials. We had a couple of, of millennials, the oldest millennials uh, on earth, 38-year-olds, um, at the Harvard campus back in the late 90s. And they looked around our campus, other college campuses around the country, high schools, et cetera. And it seemed like everyone in, in their generation, the older millennials, were involved in some meaningful way of community service. Um, but very uh, a little interest in voting and politics and talking about politics. And it was their idea to start this survey at Harvard at the IOP, um, which we've been doing now for, for 20 years. And what we wanted to understand, Bob, is why is it that young people volunteer, care so much about their community, but don't really like voting very, very much? Um, so we conducted the survey, and what we found was, though they have such um, high regard for, vo uh, for volunteerism, they didn't think that political engagement could, could bring any tangible, meaningful results. And the degree to which young people believe that politics mattered um, was the driver for their level of, uh, of participation, right? So that's how it all started, and we can talk hopefully over the course of the evening about um, their, their interest in participation. But the way in which they're different is they have a, a different set of values, I think, than the generations that preceded them, number one. Number two, um, unlike other generations, a set of values makes them a different kind of voter. When I started this project back in 2000, it was essentially no real difference between the way a 28-year-old voted and a 68-year-old voted. The generation gap back then, if you look at those exit polls, was two points. Two-point difference between older and younger voters, and the older voters were more likely to be Democrats and liberals and, and, and support Al Gore. Today, in the midterm elections of 2018, it's a 36-point gender gap, 36-point generation gap. While the gender gap um, it's still moving. It, it's moving at uh, the generation gap is moving at three times the speed as a gender gap. Race, 
income, other gaps are narrowing while this generation gap. So they have a completely different set of values one. The other thing to note about this particular generation of young people is they're showing up to vote. The average uh, level of participation over the last 30 years uh, for midterm elections is about 16%, not very high. Only about one in seven uh, young people under the age of 30 voted um, on average in the last 32 years, the last 16 midterm elections. That goes for baby boomers, that goes for Gen X, and that goes for those older millennials. The last midterm election back in, um, back in November, 30, conservatively, 33% voted, twice as many as ever before. So not only does this generation have a different set of values, they're more progressive, but they're voting at rates in which we haven't seen in uh, at least uh, a couple of decades. And that makes them a unique and important political force in the primaries, in the caucuses, in the general, and also really in the day-to-day in the -day business of, uh, of Washington and impeachment right now. You think they're going to show up in 2020? Oh, they're going to show. Yeah, they're going to they're going to show up, and um, they're going to show up. And and a couple of reasons why I feel that way is that there's this attitudinal question that we ask, which is, you know, do you agree or disagree that politics can make a tangible difference? You know, young people volunteer. Many of you, I'm sure, volunteer because you can see the impact that you make when you teach someone how to read or feed someone who's hungry. And politics back in those days, and even just a few years ago, was distant and opaque, and it was hard to see the, the difference between one party versus the other party. That changed. We saw a 15-point shift in that attitude um, uh, pre and post 9-11, um, which led to increasing levels of participation in every single midterm between 2000 and 2006, and led to the Obama movement. Then the, the narrow, people became kind of, uh, had grown a distaste for politics. Change didn't happen as quickly as they would like, and the gap narrowed. And then what happened, Bob, was that in uh, 2017, we asked the same question. From 2016 to 2017, a 15-point change again in that question. Politics matter. Sanders voters could see the difference between a Clinton ticket and a, a Sanders ticket. And Clinton voters could see the difference between a Democratic administration and Republicans. And the same thing with Trump. Politics mattered. We saw the same effect uh, post-Trump as we did post-9-11. And all the polls we took... Uh, ahead of the midterm election, were right on in terms of you know mid, people in the mid because of a mid thirty or you know thirty three to thirty seven percent said they were definitely turning out, and uh, I see every indication that will continue. The high water mark, unfortunately, for eighteen to twenty nine year olds is still just around fifty percent, forty eight percent in '08 in terms of uh, recent history. But um, we haven't had a, a younger generation like Gen Z in quite a while, and I think they're the real engine. Many of uh, undergrads in this room would be technically a member of Gen Z. Uh, I want to get to sort of the general election and the Trump effect later, but I, I'm intrigued by, by one question uh, that I see around here all the time. Uh, how many in, people in this room are Democrats, by the way, or will vote in the Democratic primary? How many of you are for Biden? Okay, that's my question. Uh, why is there so much resistance to Joe Biden among younger Democrats? It can't be age. They like Elizabeth Warren. They seem to like Bernie Sanders, uh, who are also in their 70s. So, so I think that's the answer to the question, which is there's competition. There's a lot of competition, right? So, to, you know, uh, back in 2015, in our first poll of that year, uh, Bernie Sanders had 1% of the vote, 1% of the vote. Um, and we know, you know, a year later, he, he amassed more votes in the primary than Hillary Clinton among young people under 30. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump kind of combined, right? Um, and he did it 
uh, on this kind of unique uh, set of values and policies and message and messengers, a very kind of a unique combination of things that really spoke to, I think, the kind of the values of, uh, of that generation, which is around kind of systemic change and uh, dealing to kind of close the gaps around inequality wherever it happens. So he starts with that base, he carries that base. I think Bernie Sanders had uh, a more significant impact on democratic politics than anyone I know, at least in 50 years, from a losing candidate. Um, that's part one. Part two is now you have Elizabeth Warren as well, who's talking about the same issues from a different angle, structural change. Um, and I think they're taking just a lot of oxygen and there's less room for others. And, and it's just not Biden, but it's Pete Buttigieg, who looks and thinks a lot like members of this generation, has not also kind of you know, over-indexed or captured the, kind of the hearts and minds of young voters yet. Um, so I think circumstance and the competition is one thing. The other thing, you know, frankly, is that he, um, you know, is, is not, I think, challenging and empowering voters, young voters, in the way in which they need to and want to be empowered. Young voters are not nearly the kind of transactional cohort in American politics that other kinds of voters are. And, and to really, I think, do well, you need, to, you need to kind of have that shared worldview. You need to listen to them. You need to, you need to um, speak to them about the broad issues that they care about, the shared worldview that Obama did so well, and then empower them to do something. So I think when you see in the Sanders campaign, you see in the Warren campaign, them doing that. Biden, you know, he started uh, his college, his college uh, program just, just a few months ago. We'll see if it, um, if it gains steam, um, but he's got a lot of competition. Is, this, is it stylistic, uh, atmospheric, or is it issue-driven? I mean, would he have to be for, like, Medicare for all? I, I think it's a combination of things. Listen, he, he gave the uh, commencement address at my son's college, and there are lines and lines and lines of people to, to see him and to talk to him, and um, he was a great hit. Um, and he did a lot of great work on college campuses, right, around, around sexual abuse and other things. He's got a good record. Um, but I do think that stylistically, you know, what, what made Sanders so unique was um, his authenticity. Once people understood um, his policies, they looked back at the last 20 or 30 years of his career and it kind of matched. He seemed authentic. Um, and that kind of worked for him. And I, I think it's a challenge for anyone to speak to young people from inside the system where, where he is. Um, but I do think there are some policies that potentially could, could help move that quickly. Listen, making, making gun violence, making school shootings um, a, a significant priority. He obviously takes a lot of credit um, for helping move the assault weapon ban, which had tremendous success in, in terms of not lowering the number of shootings, but lowering the number of fatalities. That's an angle, I think, um, to speak to young voters. So its opportunities are there. I just don't think they've, they've quite uh, focused as much as I would like to uh, see them do. If, if Biden uh, were the nominee, uh, which I know someone here in the first row would be very upset about, if Biden were the nominee, would young people show up at the polls? I do. I think so. Unlike, unlike um, what happened in 16 when, when some people um, stayed back, I think because politics matters, they see the difference between a Republican Democrat administration and the Democrats. I think who support other candidates. Um, I think they will. I think they will. And there's a lot of data in the last few weeks that would support that as well. Uh, so Bernie Sanders was the first person in my memory running in a major party primary to get up and say, "I'm a socialist." 
And people thought that would absolutely destroy him. Uh, it obviously didn't. Now, Elizabeth Warren is careful to say she's not a socialist. She's a capitalist. Do these terms mean anything? Uh, they, I don't know if they mean anything, but there's real insight there. So one of, the, one of the best parts of my job is that I'm not the one as, you know, now a 50-something-year-old person who writes the questions to understand your generation. It's the students that I work with at Harvard who, who kind of develop these questions, right? So we had this a great student for four years. He would show up every Monday trying to get a question in the poll. It wasn't until his last semester, and he wanted to know about political labels. And he said um, he had a hard time writing questions. But his last question was, I want to know if people identify as capitalist, as socialist, as feminist, as patriot, a variety of things. So uh, we did a poll, and half of the questions were about, do you identify as this? And the other was, do you support you know, the ideologies, capitalism, socialism, et cetera? But we found out that less than half of young people, 42%, supported capitalism. Less than that supported socialism. So when we talk about polling a margin of error of 5%, means that one out of 20 polls has some significant flaw in it. I thought that was a poll. I thought that was a mistake. I thought it was a mistake. I took the poll again. I went back. I got some more bu budget. I did the poll again, and I found the exact same response. In fact, that it wasn't until we got to people over the age of 50 where there was net support for capitalism back in 2015. I was then kind of uncomfortable. How do I explain this in just a couple of weeks? And then we started doing focus groups. And there was a student at, um, at a college uh, that we spoke to, and I said, you know, they agreed, and they said, we don't support capitalism, we don't support socialism, we want a modern democratic capitalism. Who does this sound like? Okay, we want a, a kind of a modern democratic capitalism, the kind that maybe if, it, if we're in an FDR and a, and, a, and a TR, Teddy Roosevelt, they got together, you know, part square deal, break up the banks, part new deal, provide some social infrastructure. That's what we're talking about, right? So when we talk about the context of this election, it's not about labels, but it's those, those values and those um, ideas that um, begin to kind of, I think, make the case of why certain candidates are performing so well with certain, um, with, 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 uh, certain subgroups of the electorate. What are the biggest issues for millennials, Gen X, younger voters? The, uh, number one is health care, right? So health care still uh, matters even if you're, um, you know, certainly kind of in your, in your teens and your 20s and 30s. Um, so it's a number one issue among, I think, every segment of the electorate. But a couple of ways to answer that. In 2018, we had a list of 20 questions in another survey that I did. And the answer was, how important are these, uh, are these issues related to the future of America? Do you know what the number one issue was? 20 issues. Number one issue, school shootings. Um, on a, on a, on a seven-point scale, school shootings, over 50% gave it a seven on a seven-point scale. Incredible. Um, Gun, vi gun violence was number six. Number three, mental health issues. So we didn't say about like this campaign versus that campaign, about the future of America. And when we look back to see the people who are more motivated to vote, it was school shootings that was a kind of a significant driver of that. So that's one thing. And language means a lot. It's not about control. It's about reducing violence, schools, accidents, et cetera. That's one. The interesting thing, too, is clearly climate change and the environment has changed dramatically, um, where we talk often today, again, from the eyes of the students, we developed some questions. We found that climate and environment is not only a top domestic policy issue, it's a top, you know, top 
five issue, but it's also a more important issue on foreign policy. Other than um, protecting, uh, uh, you know, uh, and spreading kind of humanitarianism and protecting human rights, um, among young people under 30, nothing's more important on a global basis as of last spring than climate. So, uh, do you think climate is a make or break issue for these younger voters? I, you're on the wrong side of it. Is that it? It's. Um, it's close. It's, I think it's, or if you're lukewarm about it. I think if you're lukewarm, well, li listen, you know, um, the gap, this, this gap, you know, back when I started this, it was, you know, young vote, youth vote was 50-50. They weren't always Democrats, right? So there's been a lot of things that have, have changed from, from, the part, from the lens of the Republican Party that have been kind of make or break. And that is kind of one part of it. Um, but I don't think it's climate and the environment is necessarily a make or break in the Democratic primary. I don't think I don't think so because I think there's enough, you know, recognition of the importance of it, and there's still a long way to go um, to kind of hash out the details in terms of the best path forward. Yeah, my colleague Mike Murphy argues that Republicans are putting themselves into a kind of demographic cul-de-sac that they're going to have a very hard time getting out of. Uh, that the young people who are deciding that they're progressives or whatever word you want to use, are likely to stay that way, uh, that uh, minority groups are increasingly alienated from the Republican Party, and that long term it makes it very difficult for Republicans to win. But he thinks a big key to this, and he is a Republican, a big key to this is, is, is what's happening with young people. Yes. So um, the 2000... So Take a look at the midterm elections for a second. Well, but you know, and, and it's a fallacy that young people are born Democrats. You know, George George Bush and the way in which that war was prosecuted, he he has as much to do with young people being Democrats as, as anybody. Again, they were basically 50-50 back in 2000, and in my generation, Gen X, there were more Republicans than Democrats. So it's not like you're born a, a Democrat or progressive Republican. The the events that um, you you kind of grown up into, and think about the millennials today. You know, welcome to the new millennium. You know, we have 9/11 for the older generation, and then the and then the other end of that generation who weren't old enough to vote for uh, in the 2008 campaign, welcomed into adulthood by the Great Recession, right? Um, at a time when you know they're they're maturing uh, politically, socially, psychologically around the age of 25. So so the the lack of security, um, whether it's financial or physical, I think is really shaped. Um, the attitudes of, um, of, of, of this generation. And at the, at the Institute of Politics, kind of part of our job is to increase participation. We sit down with Democrats and Republicans to, to try to identify ways in which they can kind of connect you know, with the younger people. And to me, Republicans have just not made the amount of effort that is necessary. Having said that, although they are clearly more progressive, and Democrats, there's a 10-point partisan uh, switch over the last five years. Only a third believe the Democratic Party cares about people like that, right? So values have changed, but not necessarily this allegiance. They care about, they, they're voting for Democrats because Republicans are the, are the alternative. If Republican Party managed to recognize climate and to begin to have meaningful conversations about some of the other things that they care about, I think, you know, um, they could become a more significant factor. But... Um, I've been saying that now for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, I want to get to some more specific issues, but what you just said is intriguing to me. So Barack Obama wins in 2008. 
He wins with a lot of help from younger voters. High school voters in Iowa, including. Yes. Because they could vote in the caucus. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, did he disappoint them? It's a good question. He, so he won, so, you know, so John Kerry won, uh, John Kerry, the only youth, to give you the perspective, the only cohort of age cohort that John Kerry won was young people, and he got 54, 55%. Barack Obama got 66% of the youth vote, right? Um, and uh, people knew who weren't even regular voters that they wanted to be part of something that was special and unique. Yeah, and what are the expectations? I kind of blame both sides, frankly. I blame young people for, for, for not understanding that government moves slowly. Um, and I also put some blame on, on uh, clearly they were busy, uh, on the Obama administration for not finding a way to continue to have that conversation. And without question, many were left kind of dis disappointed, disenchanted. The important question I talked to you about politics making a tangible difference. That, that gap narrowed to basically zero, as many believed and didn't believe that was the case. In every election since 2008, we saw decreasing levels of political participation, 10, 12, and 14. So that happened. In addition to that, um, younger people come into the system, turn more independent, actually. Uh, th there was a couple of points of, uh, of, of people coming in as, as independents. So yeah, there were some levels of disappointment, but looking back now, historically, the, the folks who came in with him are, are the most reliable, I think, Democrats in the electorate now, people in their 30s. Conversely, what's the Trump effect? The, the Trump effect, I think, is, you know, is historic levels of political participation. No, but on, in terms of partisan oh, lean. Yeah, um, the Trump voter, so overall, President Trump among 18 to 29-year-olds has an approval rating of between 25 and 29%. It's the same rating that George W. Bush had, right? So um, at the similar time, um, at the similar time in the presidency, and so it's a, it's a, that's essentially the, 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 the Republican base moving forward, a quarter, right? A quarter of the largest generation in the history uh, of America. So I think what he's done is he's kind of hardened the racial divides in America. Um, still, as much as we talk about the generational divide, there's still a significant divide between, um, between you know, races, white, black, Hispanic, Latino, Asian. And um, I think he's only kind of exacerbated um, those, uh, those cleavages, even among, even among young people. But he promised to be a disruptor. He was going to disrupt the system, and young people wanted to disrupt the system. Yeah, we had a briefing. Of, uh, the, 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 he could have done more. Here's the thing. The, the, there are elements, there are elements, and we did a lot of polling on this in, in the early part in, in 2017. There were elements of his message that could have kind of broadened his base a little bit. A Republican doesn't need to win the youth vote to be successful. They need to keep a Democrat under 60%. Hillary Clinton got 55%. Generic Democrats start to 55 and she ended at 55%, whereas I said Obama went to 60 and 66. There was opportunity around that because he could have talked, I think, about immigration around early, around um, even kind of merit-based, uh, you know, dealing with kind of the inequalities uh, of, of who happens and, you know, who's able to get into the country based on um, some other things that weren't necessarily fair. Dealing with inequality, dealing with fairness, recognizing um, what young people care about provided an opportunity for him to expand his, his base in some way, but he didn't. He chose actually to narrow his base, I think. Um, and we'll see. I don't know if... 
the Republican Party has another face in a couple of years, what happens? If Nikki Haley is the face of the Republican Party, um, I think there are some independents. We'll take another look, right? We'll see. Um, but the future, um, I, I think about it on a, on, a, on a scale from like libertarian now to, to, to liberal. And I think um, that's what we're beginning to see, um, especially as we look, look out you know, 10, 12 years from now. So you mentioned Hillary Clinton. Uh, she said, I think it was yesterday, that maybe she would run again so she could beat Trump a second time. Uh, wh why did she perform at the level she performed at with, with millennial and Gen X voters? I don't think it was a priority. I don't think it was. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a priority. Listen, um, you know, uh, what I mean by that is uh, you, need to, you need to put some effort in. We talked before about the shared worldview. And back in 2004 in Boston when, when Obama gave that keynote, he talked about how he saw kind of a red and blue America, and he talked about you know kind of respect for for faith and religion and, and a variety of of other things, and I think people started to pay attention. And and I knew in that campaign early that Obama would have a special relationship with young people when he when he talked. And I think it was kind of off the cuff when he said that he'd sit down, he's he'll be willing to sit down with leaders even from rogue nations. And and he was criticized in real time as saying that was naive. He says no, it can't hurt to sit down. And I knew instinctively that that was something that young people would kind of, um, kind of, kind of connect with. The idea of collaboration, the idea of trying something new outside the system, challenging status quo, those sorts of things. And those are the reasons that he did so well. Plus, as the campaign moved on, he empowered people, right? And he made them part of that effort. Um, and that's what it takes. And um, I'm not sure uh, the Clinton campaign took that um, as seriously. I think. My sense is it felt like they took your generation for granted, but I'd be interested in what you guys, um, you know, could have to say on that. Uh, well, that's that's. <laughs> I feel right. Did you feel taken for granted by Hillary Clinton? <laughs> that she just wasn't working to get your votes. Yeah, I mean, on policy, yeah. In general, yeah. I still would have voted for her. Right. 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 I'd like to follow up, talk more about Trump. Uh, I don't know if you have any data on this, but can you talk about millennial and Gen Z attitudes toward impeachment? Yeah, I don't think we'd be. I don't think we would be where we are without your generation. Okay, a couple of reasons why. Number one, compared, to, I did a lot of analysis compared to 2014 midterm versus 2018 midterm. I looked at 20 subgroups of voters. No subgroup of voters changed dramatically from 14 to 18 as younger people. 24-point shift, okay? 24-point shift. The overall country shift shifted 14 points. Uh, Democrats lost by six points in 2014. They won the 18 midterm by eight points. Voters on the age of eight, eight, uh, between 18 and 29 shifted 24 points. The group that shifted next um, highest from Republican to Democrat, voters 30 to 44, okay? That essentially accounts for at least two points in the national popular vote. Shorthand, it's about 10 congressional seats went from red to blue based on young people, number one. I think Speaker Pelosi understood that in terms of the way in which she um, began um, kind, of the, the, kind of the session, and, and including, um, I think, um, and managing that process well in terms of the early resolutions, et cetera. Um, so that's one, one piece. The second piece is the polling. Even today, the only uh, age group, the only major group 
um, that supports impeachment and removal are people under the age of 45, right? Uh, 57% of people under the age of 45 support impeachment and removal. Uh, 47% of people over the age of 45 say the same thing. Both of those numbers have increased nine points in the Fox poll between July and today. But to the extent that we're driving impeachment and removal, it's, 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 it's essentially your generation um, driving it. The only other group, certainly females, also over the age of 50, but men, whites, and, and so many um, other important subgroups that we think about are still under a majority when it comes to impeachment. Uh, what about, and uh, what, what, you, you've talked several times about the racial divisions, mm. white, um, black, Latino, Latinx. Uh, what about younger voters who are white or who are white men? A um, couple, couple things. Um, from a now historical perspective, but uh, you know, we, we track President Obama's approval rating. And he only had a net support of a white millennials, voters 18 to 20, a net support, net approval rating, one semester, one poll. Um, and then every other poll we took, maybe until the last one, he was under 50% approval among white young voters. So um, we, 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 we hope and we, we think that we're in a kind of a kind of post-racial you know, uh, place with younger, with younger people. It's still not there. Um, you know, uh, African-American black voters were, I think, pinned right at 79 or 8% approval every single time we took the poll. Um, uh, Latinx voters were, you know, they were very fluid, you know, from the mid-60s to the high 70s based upon when we were taking the poll. But yeah, there's a, there's a still a, a very significant racial divide even within younger, uh, younger Americans. And um, I'll tell you something, though. The one thing that connects people whether um, based upon level of education that I find, or race, or ethnicity, or, or gender, um, it's not good news. You know, five, five, six years ago, I would spend, I spent a lot of time coordinating focus groups and town meetings, and I'd ask, what was it that connects us as Americans? And I'd go from anywhere from Memphis to Philadelphia to Beverly Hills, and I hear the same thing, opportunity, right? Um, it might take someone, you know, five or six, seven steps to get from one, you know, from Memphis, Tennessee to where somewhere in, in, in Beverly Hills can get in a step or two, but we still had opportunity. Today, I ask the same question, and almost every single time, I hear fear. Fear is what connects us. And then I say, what? Fear of what? Fear of death, fear of drugs, fear of the future, fear of, fear of just of rot, fear of getting shot. Um, and I said, um, and that's the thing that kind of connects people. And so when we talk about like Joe Biden or, or someone else trying to connect, you got to start with an understanding of what it's like to be an 18 or 28 year old. It's different. It's different than what it was when I was that age and, 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 and other generations. And that needs to be recognized. And when I ask someone, if they could they write a letter, it's an African-American kid from Atlanta, write a letter to the president, uh, give him some advice. And he said, put a school psychologist in every high school in America. Right? Just the amount of stress and anxiety is just off the charts. There's more uh, stress and anxiety than joy in the average person, in a young person feels on a day-to-day -day basis. And the state of our politics is a driver of that anxiety and stress and fear, and it needs to be recognized. So how much of the generation gap in, in terms of politics is actually a racial gap or a, a, a gap between men and women? 
Yeah, it's a it's a great question because we know this is the most diverse this is the most diverse um, generation. Um, but when we compare young whites with older whites, we still have a large gap. So um, whites are going to be kind of less progressive than um, than other um, kind of non-whites people of color within the cohort. But still, when you just control for race. We still see the generation factor being a more predictive, um, uh, more of a kind of a predictive variable in uh, political attitudes. So I'm going to turn this on its head, and I don't know if you have an answer to this. All right. Why are older voters and white older voters so set in their ways? I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and. Um, and um, so a couple of, I, I'm, certainly they, many are set in their ways. And we talk about the country being 50-50, it's two thirds, one third. Two thirds of voters over the age of 50-55 vote Republican. Two thirds of voters under, under that age vote Democrat. So there's those, that's like the generational divide I'm talking about. But um, I think at the end of the day is that they just, I think they're good people who, um, who many of them... They're not deplorables. They're not deplorables. No, they're good people, right? And, and the folks I talk to tell me time and time again, they did everything in life they were supposed to do, right? They, they worked as hard as they can. They married their high school sweetheart. They um, might serve in the military. They you know, got a house or a good member of the community. You know what? And they worked as hard as they possibly could at UPS, wherever, wherever they work, right? This, I remember recently I talked to a guy who worked at UPS. You know what? There's no more hours at UPS, um, and uh, he can't work anymore. And he's at the point where he's literally selling possessions in his home to keep a roof over his head, right? And his wife took off, and his his kids are kind of struggling with the same sort of economic challenges he has. And his complaint is, it's the system, right? It's the system that he's a, had been a swing voter, this and that, you know, Clinton and Bush and wherever it was. Um, but it's a system that lets down. And when I talk to folks today who are closer to my age about where they're going to vote and, um, and who they like. Uh, I, I hear that they might have voted for Hillary uh, last time, but they could be open to Trump now. They could be open to Trump now. About 10%, I think, of that vote could be open to Trump now. They're not watching the same news that many of us in this room are watching. They see a different um, um, America through the news in which they watch. And they look at everyone as part of the system, and they discount some of um, some of the um, some of the tweeting and saying at least he's breaking up a system that I think needs to be breaking up broken up. So so when you talk about the system and complaints about the system, that and and Bernie Sanders talks about systemic change and Elizabeth Warren does. Do they mean that there is a cabal of some kind in Washington that's plotting against them, or do they mean and this is what Donald Trump gave them that they were being hurt by the other? by the immigrants who were coming in and taking their jobs, by people of a different color. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's the a, it's a latter. Right? It's the latter. And, and if you take the example of that story I just told you about the, you know, the, the, that gentleman from, you know, who, who was selling his, his guitar and his motorcycle, and then the next part of that conversation um, is, and I don't, I don't pick people in these focus groups to look like that. This just happens, right? When you, when you talk to people, they say, you know what, we never... We never took any aid or assistance in school. You know what? But like that family did. And then you can begin to see how the seeds 
of intolerance and racism kind of are so, I don't think they're bad people, I don't think that's where they go, but you can see how that's kind of fertile ground um, for, that to, for that to kind of ferment, and it's, it's obviously kind of hateful and dangerous. Um, other people don't, don't see that aspect of it, and I think they, um, they, you know, again, they just challenge the question of, at least he's breaking up the system. At least he's making people uncomfortable. And my 401k looks good, and my stocks are good, and I choose not to look at the other more negative parts um, of his presidency. So, but I, but if you talk about the people who don't have 401ks, and a lot of them voted for him in the Rust Belt, right? Right. Uh, he told them he had a simple explanation: you're in trouble because of immigrants and foreign trade, and I'm going to get in there and change that. So there's a kind of xenophobic aspect to yeah. it, and there was a kind of racial aspect because I I don't think when he said immigrants. They were thinking about people from, say, Ireland. Right. Um, and when I challenged that in a, in, a, in, a, in a group of his supporters, I said, well, you know, have, have the jobs come back? And, you know, and, and what have you gotten? And you know what they say? They say, well, you know, Democrats have been making us pro promises for 30 years. And that, in our schools still are bad. You know, and it took us a generation, two generations to get health care. So they say it's only been a couple of years. You know, uh, you know give, the guy, give the guy a break. So very, very kind of quickly to kind of, kind of re re respond, respond to that. Yeah. Okay, there's, I want to ask you about one other issue about millennials, and then I have a final question. I'm going to let them uh, talk to you. Uh, Sanders and Warren talk a lot about college costs, wiping out college costs, uh, free college. Is that a big driver among younger voters? I think there's support for it, but it's not, I think, a driver. I don't think, I don't think, and that's, I think some, some candidates um, look at things like what's the, what's the policy driver, what's the, what's the, you know, the, the, the special key that's going to unlock, you know, the attitudes of this generation and win their support. It's not that simple. You, they need to spend the time to understand why that matters, right? And it matters because of the things I talked about before, because of the stress, because of the opportunity um, or that you do or don't get. It's an, it's an important part of a, of a platform, but I don't think it's a special kind of driver in and of itself. It's going to kind of make a, a, significant, uh, it's a, a significant difference. You know, people, people ask me all the time about what does a millennial want? You know what they want? And I asked 2,000 of them in a survey recently. Like, it's pretty amazing. Like, they want to be happy. Right? I say, what's the idea of your best life? Like, have a house, have a garden, don't have a lot of bills, not a lot of stressors in my life. Time and time and time again, that's what I'm, what, what I'm getting. They have a fundamental different view of the future of America and the American dream, given that you grew up in the time in which you grew up, 9-11 and, 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 uh, and the Great Recession, and, and, and now Parkland. So um, sometimes you don't have to like, work so hard to get the perfect policy, you need to respect and empower them and let them know that you're on their side. Yeah, not so long ago, Pete Buttigieg was a student of yours. Uh, do you see any prospect that he or someone other than the three people in the top tier in the Democratic race could break through? I think if someone else breaks through, it's likely to be, it's likely to be um, Pete, we used to call him Peter, he was known as Peter back in 2004, three, 2002 to 2004, he worked on that survey. I'll tell you something about. Can I tell you something about? So this means in 12 or 14 years, yeah, no one pressure. of you can run for president. No pressure. <laughs> um, 
What I will say about, about Mayor Pete is that the questions that he's challenging his, uh, his, his, uh, his, uh, his opponents and America with are the same questions he challenged me with in terms of understanding the values of his generation, right, and how to turn that into policies that, that uh, turn people out to vote and to participate. It's very much a similar kind of conversation. But I see him um, uh, because I think that there's a pragmatism. We talked about progressiveness, but there's also a pragmatism. And I think young people um, were disappointed in, in Obama. And one of the reasons that they were disappointed is because all the things that he wanted to do didn't happen so quickly, right? So I think as we move towards you know, the latter the, you know, debate next week and the ones afterwards, I, I sense that there'll be more conversations. How much is a cost? How is it going to happen? Those sorts of things. And I think that um, his, his responses to some of those questions around healthcare policy um, has an opportunity to really uh, begin to kind of set him apart um, from some of the other uh, challenges. So I do think of someone other than Warren or Sanders or Biden, it will likely be uh, Mayor Pete. Uh, do you have any other predictions about uh, 2020? I think it's going to be a historic turnout uh, of young people, but, you know, polling isn't about predictions. You know that. I know, but you can always get yourself in a hole. I mean, you know, on the... On, That's why I asked you if there's media... On, on the circus the Sunday night before the election, I said, no how, no way. Not in this universe and not in any alternative universe. Can Donald Trump be elected president of the United States? And Murphy, who was on the same show, agreed with me. Uh, so predictions are dangerous. And I think... The Trump campaign probably wouldn't say it. I don't know if they would have gone that far, but I think it was a surprise to them as well, wasn't it? Yeah, they were very surprised right. when they won. Right. Yeah. Uh, all right, I'm going to turn open this up and let you guys ask questions. Hi, I'm Christian. For context and my perspective, I was one-year-old when 9-11 happened. So uh, a lot of the divide between white voters is based on education, as we know. The, a lot of people say that Democrats can stem their bleeding among non-college educated whites, but I'm a subscriber to the belief that Democrats have not yet reached their floor with non-college educated white voters, and Republicans have not yet reached their floor with college educated white voters. As the Republican Party moves to the right and starts moving more towards national conservatives like Josh Hawley and uh, Tom Cotton, I think they're going to move more towards those than Nikki Haley. Mm -hmm. uh, how much further do you think both sides can fall with their respective um, educated white voters that they're struggling with? I think, uh, I, don't, I don't know in terms of, um, I don't know in terms of how much they fall. I, we had, um, I want to reference a comment that the great Peter Hart made on our campuses a couple of days ago that I thought was very, very intuitive when it comes to this question. Peter Hart's one of the great American pollsters yeah. of the last 50, 60 years. Yes, yes. Um, and, and polls uh, regularly for the Wall Street Journal and, and NBC News. And what Peter said, to, I think, to respond, to, if he was here talking about that question, he said, you know, um, Democrats had so much success in 2018 because the campaign was about um, him protecting uh, people from him taking your health care, him being Trump, okay? And, and what his critique was of the Democrats this cycle saying, um, what we want to do is we want you to pay for the health care for everyone else, right? Including those people kind of coming in, you know, and the degree to which the Democratic Party is, is out, you know, is, is based upon those kinds of conversations. Um, I think um, a lot, I think they could fall lower among 
all voters, but especially white, working class voters, et cetera. So we have to be careful of that um, kind of positioning and, and, and rhetoric, I think. I, I mean, I, I, nothing's happened over the last couple of years. So Trump's numbers have been have been really kind of consistent, haven't they, in terms of approval rings? So I'm not sure they can fall too much. I mean, listen, uh, his, Trump voters. I saw in that in the Fox in the Fox News poll, his 12% uh, of people who voted for him last time believe he should be removed from office. He went from five to 12%. Right. Um, when I when I look at other surveys that we that we've done around um, around race and around Trump. Um, and education, et cetera. There's essentially two parts, I think, of his coalition. You know, uh, about half of it, about 14% of his coalition, looks like mainline, mainline Republicans. You know, they're older, they're more religious, uh, more educated, and, and believe that immigration is a net good in America. Um, and there's some, uh, he could certainly lose some more of those, right? But those are still part of his kind of coalition. The other part, uh, less educated, a lot of females in that other part as well. Um, is another part of his coalition, the folks who show up at these rallies, et cetera. So hard, hard to know, but it's pretty close to the bottom, I think. Another question? Hi. I, so uh, with regards to Ukraine and whatnot, um, I consider myself a left of center uh, type of voter. And with regards to certain, well, with Trump and his normalization of, of uh, dangerous rhetoric and whatnot, I try to take with a pinch of salt because I understand that there's obviously another side to every story. Um, with that said, I feel like with Ukraine, he's out. He's he's acted outside of uh, a presidential code of conduct, and essentially, it appears as though that's that's. It's like it seems impeachable and whatnot. But I, my question is: is do you feel that that thirty nine percent, the kind of I understand, there's been a nine percent swing in, in the past month or so. But do you think that thirty nine percent that's kind of entrenched is Trump's voter base? Do you think there's potential, or have you seen any movement within those that category towards uh, pro-impeachment proceedings? Yeah, so across the board, there's a bench of about eight to nine points. So uh, men, women, moving eight or nine points. And as I said, the Trump voters, um, self-identified Trump voters, were five percent in July believed in impeachment and removal, um, and now it's twelve percent. Essentially, before the hearings have really kind of gathered any sort of steam. So yes, I definitely think there's room for him to lose more support, um, especially at the, the very earliest stages of this. Absolutely. Hi, so my name is Joe. And just given that there's a huge generational gap um, between polling like 45 and older and 45 and younger with Warren and Biden, yeah. um, and how you said earlier that if Biden does get the nomination that young people will still turn out to vote. I think so. yeah. Do you think that the opposite is true, that if Warren gets the nomination, will voters that are 45 uh, and older still turn out, or will they turn out for maybe the opposite reason? So that's, a, that's an interesting matchup that we talked about, right? So Warren actually support transcends age, right? So Biden you know, has most of his support among older voters. Sanders has most of his support among younger voters. Elizabeth Warren does very well transcending age. So, um, so that's kind of, that's, that's kind of one thing. The other thing is there are 5 million new young voters, 5 million new young voters who were uh, not old enough to vote in the last, in the last um, election who were coming on. That's a significant number of, uh, of people. And every, year, every, every time when an older person you know, passes away or doesn't participate, they're being replaced by a couple of younger people who are likely have very different political views. Um, so the, 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 when, you, when you chart that out, 
um, in terms of the impact it could have on, um, on kind of domestic politics, nationally as well as on a state-by-state -state basis, it's, it's transformative. Yeah, go ahead. So in the first political debates, they were talking a lot about health care. So I wanted to know how the different options, like public option versus universal health care, is polling with the different generations and how um, each of the candidates are basing their positions on health care to appeal to certain groups. Uh, so it's a great question. So we asked um, in the last IOP survey, which was in April, we had, I think, a two-tier, uh, we did a split sample. So couple, we talked to two, 3,000 people, and half of the people got a healthcare question about Medicare for All. Uh, the other half got Medicare for All and specifically stating that it would mean the end of private insurance companies. And I think there was a five-point difference between, between the two. Um, net support in the, in the mid-50s um, down to barely over 50% when you talk about removing private um, insurance from, uh, from, from the mix, right? And, um, and, and that is the most highest levels among that group compared to, compared to other generations. I, st I still think, you know, on specifically on healthcare, on, on, on education, and on climate and environment, I think there's a lot more can meat that needs to get kind of get put on the bones um, over the next couple of, of debates. There's a lot of nuance there that it's still early that needs to be kind of, uh, needs to be established. Yeah. Healthcare, very, very important. Um, uh, issue for younger people. Yeah, in the next debate, I think you're going to see a lot of push from the questioners uh, to people on how they're going to pay for their health care plan, not just losing private insurance, but how much will taxes have to go up uh, and who will pay more. Elizabeth Warren has kind of ducked that question every time she's been asked, but I think she will be forced more and more into talking about it. Uh, and you, the one thing you would not want if you were a Democrat, the one thing you would not want to have happen is to invert the health care issue and suddenly have it work for the other side. Uh, if people thought it was going to cost them a huge amount of money, or as John says, why am I paying for everybody else's health care? Uh, so those are real questions. Back there, and very, very patient. Hi, my name's Andy, and I just wanted to give like an anecdote relating the system disruption that you're talking about and about healthcare. So when I talk to some people uh, my age, as they're entering the workforce, healthcare is a big part of their job search. And one of the, the things about like system disruption, as you were talking about, is they're questioning why is it that we have to tie healthcare with work a lot of the times. And so this idea that the older generation sometimes think of my generation as being spoiled, you know, as, as being lazy and just want entitlements, which I get the argument, but, you know, it's not always the case because the way the system is set up is that we encounter a lot of obstacles. So um, a lot of the older generations sometimes say, like, they entered manufacturing because there was healthcare tied to the job, and they work, you know, decades to, to earn their position as manager, and that's why they have great healthcare benefits. And then my generation is asking, why do we have to do that to get healthcare? Like, why, are the, why is the system set up this way that we have to go through so much trouble to get to, like, something livable? And so that's, that's the way that I think a lot of people in my generation are seeing is, why is the system built this way? So in, in my terms, at least, what is why we want to disrupt it? So I think there's a generational divide, but we both want to disrupt the system in different ways. And then my question is, from polling, is a bit aside, um, from polling, how much do you think polling affects 
what undecided voters will end up voting as. So like, let's say we have top three candidates. If there's one person at the very top leading the, the top three candidates with, the, say, a five-point advantage, how much does that affect undecided voters as just giving, giving their vote to the, the top-tier candidate just, just to try to you know, push them ahead and, and figure out the nomination quickly as possible? Well, I, I think that I think this this year people don't want to feel like their vote is wasted, and uh, I think they want to vote for someone who has a who has a real chance of winning. So I think that maybe um, is how that kind of comes into it. But I think you're right on in terms of you know the ways you expressed um, the thoughts around around healthcare. There's a real. I did a poll. Uh, this is interesting. I asked um, every generation what they thought of the other generations. Um, so I asked baby boomers. You have a favorable, unfavorable impression of your generation, given the, you know, the amount of time and experience you've had in your life. And uh, 87% of baby boomers have a favorable view of baby boomer generation. Um, <laughs> talk about narcissists, right? Um, and take a look at the, the world around, right, and the state of the world and the country. I asked the same question of baby boomers to millennials. One-third. Two-thirds of baby boomers have an unfavorable view of the millennial generation. I posted on Twitter and I got a bunch of feedback. What have millennials ever done? So I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe served in the military for a war in which they were one years old when it started. Okay. Maybe, you know, uh, you know, kind of changed, you know, the, the path of American politics when they voted for Obama, you know, in 2008, three times as many people voted as possible. Take a look at what they've done this summer. Hong Kong, Puerto Rico, the changing the way in which um, you know, companies are valued through the pressure around modern capitalism through what the Business Roundtable did. I don't think we're debating Medicare for all if it's not for young people. I don't think Dix is taking the guns off the shelf, uh, assault weapons off the shelf, and destroying them if not for young people. So young people have had a tremendous impact, I think, in the way in which we... We live the lives, and, and, uh, and uh, I think we'll continue to do so because of your interest in your service and your level of political commitment. Let me add one thing. Uh, why is the system built this way? It's a complete accident. Uh, in the 20s and 30s, if you got sick with certain diseases, you were gone. I mean, today, Franklin Roosevelt probably would not have to die because they would know what to do with his high blood pressure and his high cholesterol, but they had no idea then. So uh, when Harry Truman in 1948 proposed a national health insurance system, it would have been a single-payer system, uh, there was an enormous pushback from the AMA, actually, uh, which today takes a very different view of some of these issues. Enormous pushback from the AMA, and it went nowhere. So what did the labor unions do? And they were much, a much bigger part of the economy then. Labor unions began to negotiate with corporations to provide health benefits for their workers. And once labor did that, it became a more general phenomenon. And you couldn't just do, say, the top executives in your company. You had to provide a system that somehow or other everybody could participate in. Now, that system is frayed at the edges. It's very expensive. Uh, there are more and more companies that are not doing it. But that's how we got here. We got here by historical accident. <laughs> No, nobody would design as this as the ideal healthcare system. Uh, you know, someone like Pete Buttigieg would say, "Medicare for all who want it," and we'll have a public option, and we'll have private insurance, and people will vote with their wallets and their feet. They'll either go to the public option or they'll go to private insurance. And if the public option is so much better, over time, private insurance will die out. Uh, 
That's an attempt to deal with the complexities of the system without blowing it up instantly. We have another question here. We're almost out of time. Hi. Um, first of all, thank you for coming. I really appreciate your insight. Um, my question has a little bit more to do with the data side of things. Um, from what I've seen and what you've spoken about, um, this is completely data-driven. And in the last election, as we all know, the Cambridge Analytica situation and the invasion of digital privacy um, was a really big issue um, for voters at the time who did know and who did not know um, at the same time as well. So what, what, what role do you think that will play um, in the way that people are thinking about the election this year? Um, in the way that our data may or may not be manipulated in order to sway uh, right. perspectives. So uh, it's a great it's a great question. So I used to uh, a couple couple quick points on that. Uh, uh, I used to use a lot of uh, social media related data to help me do my job well, right? Because I used to believe to do my job well, I need to ask you what you think, but I need to observe aggregate. Okay, what you're doing online, what do you care so much about that you want to share in a public way? And there were real insights that I could kind of glean from that. Again, aggregated, not knowing who you are as an individual, just like a poll, aggregating data, right? Yes, and using that data, I was able to build highly sophisticated models that were predicting elections in countries around the world, box office within a few hundred seats. You can do incredible things with that data. Uh, most of the companies don't allow that data to be shared uh, kind of anymore, right? That's kind of part one. So Facebook and Twitter has really kind of cut back on, on, on what most people kind of can access. Having said that, um, there was a great uh, profile a couple of days ago in, in one of the national papers where um, through, the, through the end of the convention, right to the beginning of the convention, the last cycle, Trump campaign spent, I think, $60 million, $63 million to win the nomination. Um, at this point, um, Trump campaign and I think committees have spent a half a billion dollars on campaign activities. And we list the, uh, the companies and the organizations that are at the top uh, getting the most money. They're, they're data analytics targeting companies, right? So uh, I don't know, I'm not saying they're illegal. I don't, I don't think they're illegal, but they're using those kinds of techniques to target people, probably not yourself, right? Because they probably know who you are and, and, and where you vote. But yeah, so data, technology, uh, it's playing an increasing role um, and will continue to play an increasing role in this. And most of the Democrats are using on the other side of Facebook to, to, uh, to raise money, right? So it's just going to play an in increasing outsized role. I mean, it had tremendous impact on, on your old business, yeah. um, TV versus digital ads. Well, it's the interesting thing, and I'll conclude with this, yeah. is if you want to reach younger people, broadcast television advertising is really not the way to get there. But if you want to reach voters over 45 or over 50, you've still got to run a lot of broadcast TV advertising, which is why in most campaigns Barack Obama spent, I think in 2012, two-thirds of his communication dollars on broadcast TV trying to reach those folks. Uh, anyway, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for coming. And, John, thank you very much. Thank you. Great. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture, Facebook, and YouTube. And visit our website for upcoming programs.